This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor, coming to you from Gadigal Land. And me, Norman Swan, and also coming to you from Gadigal Land. This week, two special features for you. It's a disease estimated to affect more than 1.7 million Australians, but 90% of them are completely unaware they have the condition. Chronic kidney disease has been on the rise for some time. The number of people undergoing dialysis and transplants has more than doubled in the last two decades. And as COVID-19 emerges as a new risk factor, experts say the need for early detection has never been more important. Health Report producer Shelby Trainer has the story. It really is a silent killer. I'm a perfect example of that. Healthy, as I thought, 29-year-old. I'd just come back from my honeymoon on a high and was working full-time, really busy, you know, planning for the future. I lost 90% of my function and almost died and was completely unaware. I think the best option is to just start from the beginning again. I know it's a long story, but I feel like just for consistency. Leslie Tozer spoke to me on one of the four days a week that she isn't hooked up to a machine that has taken over the role of her kidneys. She's one of the almost 15,000 Australians currently on dialysis, a treatment that removes waste products and excess fluid from the blood. It's a treatment that, 11 years ago, Leslie admits she knew very little about. I just felt extremely fatigued more than usual and I had some swelling in my ankles. Instinct prevailed and I went to see my GP just to get a full blood count, assuming that I did have just anemia and, you know, I thought the doctor's probably just going to put me on some iron tablets. The doctor gave me a call, it was on a Friday evening, saying... Your blood test results are severely abnormal. It's showing that your kidneys are failing. There's an ambulance coming for you to take you to the Alfred. Really surreal to hear, like, just it didn't really sink in. I mean, going from thinking that I was just run down to the fact that I was, I was dying. Leslie was told that if she didn't undergo treatment immediately, she would be dead by Monday. While it's a dramatic story, it's not an uncommon one. Chronic kidney disease often goes unnoticed until there's already been irreversible damage. It's a very silent disease. You can lose 90% of your kidney function before you have any symptoms. My name is Professor Carol Pollock and I am the Chair of Kidney Health Australia. Are you able to just give me a quick summary of what chronic kidney disease is and and why you're so interested in looking at that? Maybe it's easier if I start off what the kidney normally does, which is it normally filters the blood and removes toxins and unwanted materials from the blood. So when we get chronic kidney disease, it's basically a failure of those processes. Anyone can develop chronic kidney disease, but one in three Australians are at an increased risk because of diabetes, high blood pressure or certain lifestyle factors. 
And unfortunately, both diabetes and high blood pressure should be treated adequately to prevent the development of kidney disease. But in fact, it accounts for more than 50%. Being overweight and uh, smoking are also risks. And people with an Indigenous background, unfortunately, have about a sevenfold increased risk. A proportion of people have a genetic cause of kidney disease that is, to this point, non-modifiable. Leslie was otherwise healthy when she arrived at the hospital. Initially, doctors thought she had cancer, but after two weeks of chemotherapy, she was diagnosed with a rare disorder called good pasture syndrome. My immune system gets confused and attacks all the cells in my body, particularly, well, obviously the kidneys, it just wiped them out. I had about 10 to 15% function, which I was managing okay, I was, I was, look, I was very tired. Then fast forward a year later, keeping in mind I was on a contraceptive pill, I somehow miraculously was pregnant. The nephrologist couldn't believe it, my GP couldn't believe it. They knew that he was going to have to come out early, 36 weeks, that was the hope. However, my kidneys completely failed when it got to 29 weeks and five days. It was much safer for him to come out. It was very scary, very scary for my poor husband, having both his newborn son in NICU and his wife in ICU. When my son was five months old, my nephrologist said, you know, unfortunately, you have to start dialysis now or else, you know, you can't continue living. So first question that anyone asks, really, and I certainly did and my husband did, was how long? How long... A, can I live on dialysis and how long is it going to be until I'm lucky enough to get a transplant? Transplantation is an excellent treatment for chronic kidney disease, but dialysis really is just a treatment that keeps people alive and it causes a huge impact on people's health. The screening to have a transplant is quite extensive and not everybody is eligible. And of course, we have a very long waiting list for a transplant. And during that period, while people are on dialysis, they're at risk of having heart attacks and strokes that mean that their ability to have a transplant may well diminish with time on dialysis. Obviously, they can't give you an actual time, but they can give you a time frame. And the time frame in Australia is three years, roughly. And to me, initially, I thought, whoa, that's a lot. How, how am I going to do this? You know, having a newborn baby, I was pretty shocked. However, I got used to it and I actually got quite excited and, and a little bit of adrenaline thinking my life's going to change soon. I'm going to get some sort of normality in life back. When that call comes, always checking my phone when it was a private number or anything. My mind was just totally in that loop, I guess, even to the point where I had my <laughs> car packed like in the back like with hospital clothes between year three and year four. That's when I found it most difficult mentally. Like I really had a bit of a breakdown then. I just thought, it's never going to happen. It's, it's just not coming. And it just, to be honest, after it got to the four or five year mark, I'd started back at work, really just put the idea of transplant out of my head because I've just got to get on with my life and just appreciate each day and not be just waiting, wishing my life away and waiting for this magic call that might never come. Since her diagnosis, Leslie has maintained a stubbornly high level of antibodies, meaning if she were to receive a new kidney, 
it's likely her body would reject the transplant. So it's 11 years now, it was 11 years last week. I've been on dialysis. According to a report from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, the number of people receiving kidney replacement therapy more than doubled between the year 2000 and the year 2020. In 20 years, the number of patients went from 11,700 to 27,700. Chronic kidney disease was listed as either an underlying cause of death or more commonly an associated cause of death in 11% of all the deaths recorded in Australia in 2020. That's 17,700 deaths. And it's likely that number is an underestimation. My name's Karen Dwyer. I am a kidney specialist and I also am a professor of medicine at Deakin University and the clinical director at Kidney Health Australia. I'm not surprised with the data that was presented. It's very clear when you're on the ground that there's a huge increase in the number of people with kidney disease and then progressing to kidney failure. From 2019 to 2020, dialysis was the most common reason for hospitalisation in Australia. But a majority of patients actually undergo treatment at units that are separate from hospitals. The number of patients receiving dialysis at these satellite units has increased more than 250%. It's really difficult for us to be able to find dialysis units that have capacity to support these individuals. If we've got dialysis running for, say, five hours and someone needs it three times a week, it's not something that you can just pull in an additional chair and there you go. We've got a lot of equipment that goes along with that. The pressure is especially being felt in regional areas where the rate of chronic kidney disease is three times higher than in major cities. And numbers are only expected to rise further. Modelling from Australia's dialysis and transplant registry predicts another 4,000 people could be on dialysis by the end of the decade. So kidney disease has been on the rise for a while, primarily because we're seeing a big rise in diabetes, and that's the main cause of kidney failure. But what we may see is a further rise in chronic kidney disease as a consequence of COVID infection. So there is emerging data that kidney injury is very common in somebody that gets COVID infection. And we know that an episode of kidney injury during an acute illness sets someone up for increased risk of future chronic kidney disease and kidney failure. Acute kidney injury causes a buildup of waste products in your blood and makes it hard for the kidneys to keep the right balance of fluid in the body. Researchers from the University of Queensland actually recently led a study into acute kidney injury in COVID patients. Dr Marina Weinstein was part of the team. In terms of what causes kidney injury in COVID-19, there are a number of physiological pathways for the kidney injury, which includes damage to the microstructure of the kidney from blood pressure changes. We also know that patients with COVID tend to clot more easily, and this can affect the small blood vessels of the kidney. We know the immune system, there's, some, there's a degree of dysregulation in COVID and that also can cause a, a local inflammatory effect to the level of the kidney. And finally, in some cases, there can be direct viral invasion of the kidney. 
it's becoming clear that acute kidney injury, or AKI, isn't always picked up in patients who fall seriously ill with COVID-19. Usually, AKI is diagnosed by looking at the rise of a byproduct called creatinine, but researchers decided to also look at the fall of creatinine levels in COVID patients to detect people who experienced kidney injury before being admitted to hospital. Using an extended definition that included both the rise and the fall in serum creatinine identified almost twice as many cases of AKI than the traditional definition, so 31 versus 16%. While acute kidney injury is reversible, it does increase a person's risk of developing chronic kidney disease down the line. Dr. Weinstein says that's why catching these cases when they happen is so important. GP will generally try to address the risk factors that will determine the trajectory of the patient's kidney injury, improving things like the blood pressure, sugar control in diabetics, and lifestyle factors like diet and physical activity, as well as smoking cessation if needed. I suspect that we will see a further increase in kidney disease above what perhaps we had modelled pre-pandemic. Professor Karen Dwyer says acute kidney injury isn't the only risk. COVID-19 can worsen or even increase the risk of developing diabetes, which is the leading risk factor for chronic kidney disease, while some people with long COVID see a decline in kidney function. We need to slow this progression down. We really need to start thinking about how do we prevent somebody actually reaching kidney failure. This is where we need to really go, okay, let's look at early detection of kidney disease, get in early, find the diagnosis, and then provide people with strategies, managements, treatments to actually slow progression, but most importantly, maintain health and well-being and not wait for somebody to develop that more severe sort of end stage or, or kidney failure phase. So what are the options for someone who's diagnosed with chronic kidney disease early? Well, one promising treatment, dapagliflozin, was just added to the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. Professor Carol Pollock has studied the drug's protective effects. People who were taking dapagliflozin were 39% less likely to have a 50% decline in their kidney function. They were 39% less likely to reach end-stage kidney disease or die a cardiovascular or a kidney death. So that's incredibly important. If these drugs are used early, their kidney function actually stabilises completely. If they're used later, then it delays the decline in kidney function. But that's why it's important to detect kidney disease early so these drugs can be used early and stabilise kidney disease. Professor Karen Dwyer says education is key for both members of the public and practitioners. The fundamental to all this is the focus again on health and well-being. The importance of nutrition, good nutrition, removing ultra-processed foods, addressing the consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages, which we know impacts so many aspects of of somebody's health. Advocacy on, on physical activity, stress management, sleep, all these fundamental, what I call sort of foundational components of, of management. These are the things that people can be empowered to self-manage, but they need to be given the right advice. 
It's thought 1.7 million Australians are unaware they're currently living with the early signs of kidney disease. That's 11% of adults in the country. In Leslie's case, it's uncertain what triggered her illness, but she believes if she'd been more aware of the symptoms or if doctors had caught it sooner, she might have avoided dialysis entirely. The early detection, it's just life-altering, you know, and it's the difference of being on life support and being tied to a machine or being able to just take a tablet. Please don't end up like me. Listen to your instinct. Listen to your guts. You've got a risk factor of high blood pressure. You develop, you know, a lot of headaches. You notice any changes in your urine output. Go and get a blood test, simple blood test done. Even just having your blood pressure checked is a very good indicator as to what your kidneys are doing. The earlier that you can get checked, can make a difference between life or death, essentially, or, you know, a, a very different life from one that you would have planned. That was Leslie Tozer finishing off that story by Shelby Trainer. And as Shelby mentioned, diabetes is the leading risk factor for chronic kidney disease. Just like kidney disease, there are lots of misconceptions about diabetes. The gap is especially stark for people with diabetes in remote Indigenous communities, who are unfortunately one of the most likely groups to be diagnosed. I've been speaking to Dr Renee Kirkham from the Menzies Institute in Darwin and Emily, who was diagnosed two years ago when she was 14, about some of the issues that come up post-diagnosis. I was just playing netball at school at the time and I twisted my ankle went to doctors and they noticed my sugar level was a bit too high. So I had to um, go back the next morning without eating and do a sugar test. And then it, it was high. So I just got diagnosed on that. That's how it happened. Did you have anything happening in your body beforehand that made you think that maybe something was wrong? Um, no, I didn't notice anything until I went to see the doctors. And when they said to you, you've got diabetes, like what did that mean to you at the time? Had you heard about it before? Did you know what it meant? I did know about it. My mum and my dad had diabetes. It wasn't a big shock to me. I just understood it and just said, oh, okay, I got it. So do you have many friends or like people your age that also have diabetes? Like, can you talk to your friends about it? I don't know anyone around my age that has diabetes yet. I did talk to people around my age who already told them I got diabetes and they don't really care I had it, like they don't really affect anything. Renee, when you hear Emily's story, how does that gel with the sorts of conversations you've had with other young Indigenous people with diabetes? I think um, Emily's talking to the normalisation of diabetes that a lot of young people are experiencing. So diabetes has become quite a common family story. And so some young people expect to get diabetes, unfortunately, while others have seen it around them, so many family members experiencing it. So that's quite a common story. Emily's story also speaks to not necessarily knowing other young people who have type 2 diabetes, but we know that there are a lot of young people living with it, particularly in the same community. So one thing that young people have been telling us is that they would like to hear more about living with diabetes from their peers, but they just don't know who their peers are. So establishing peer support networks is something that we're really keen to do.
So part of the work that you've done is this paper that it's a quote in the title. I didn't really even know what diabetes was. So obviously Emily did know, but that's not the case for so many young people who are diagnosed. Yeah, that's right. And look, a lot of people, young people have, they can speak quite readily to I've got diabetes or it's about having high sugar, but discourses that expand beyond that are quite limited. What prompted you to do this study? Type 2 diabetes has typically been seen in adults only, but in more recent years, there have been reported cases of young people being diagnosed with type 2. So in recent work we've done, we undertook an audit across Northern Australia to understand the rates of type 2 diabetes among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people under the age of 25. And what we've found is that In Central Australia in particular, one in 70 young people under the age of 25 have type 2 diabetes and alarmingly this is the highest rate in the world for young people and it's doubled in the last seven years. This rate is 20 times more than for non-Indigenous youth. In Australia? In Australia, yes. So they're alarming rates and we understand that the current models of care within our health system don't meet the needs of our young people necessarily because it was a condition experienced only by adults up until quite recently. And so part of our work is really to understand what it's like for young people living with type 2 diabetes, what their needs are, what they understand, and how we might better support their management of their type 2 diabetes. So can you describe some of the key sort of conversations you found yourself having over and over again with these young people? Often young people don't necessarily feel that the clinic is a comfortable space to engage with and there are a number of reasons why this is the case. And so often if young people aren't comfortable in going to the clinic, then accessing this diabetes support that they require is really challenging and often their needs are unmet. Um, And so that really has told us that we need to co-design tailored diabetes management strategies with young people and families and communities that better meet their needs. And that might mean taking some of these programs or opportunities to work with young people outside of the clinic setting. Emily, when Renee says that, like, that the clinic is a bit of an intimidating place, is that something that you felt? Not really for me. Honestly, but I understand how they feel about the clinic because when I met Macy's a couple of times, we met outside the clinic in like a nice environment. So I wouldn't mind going to the clinic, but I'd rather not. So what sort of other environments did you meet with the medical people in that, that sort of made, what made them more inviting to you? It was um, outdoors and um, around family too. I did mine with my dad and stuff was around. It's not in a room and just talking. It's outdoors. I like that quite a bit. Renee, that's a really different setting than most people would think of a medical setting being. Is is this, is Emily's experience something that's come from the study or has she just had a really good experience where she's been? I think Emily has had a pretty good experience from what I can understand. And I think part of that relates to good relationships that Emily has with health professionals Um, in the particular clinics that she's accessed. So we were talking a bit earlier about an Aboriginal diabetes educator who Emily has a pretty good relationship with. And a lot of young people have spoken about this particular person and also the need or the importance of having Aboriginal people delivering healthcare. Yeah, for sure. So you've sort of heard from places that are doing things really well. You're hearing from the young people themselves, Renee. Was there anything that really surprised you or caught you off guard when you started to look into this? 
Yeah, look, one thing that was quite shocking was that a lot of young people spoke about the feelings of shame and stigma that they felt when they received their diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. We need to think very carefully around removing individual blame around type 2 diabetes. So often it's not the young person's fault that they have type 2 and that's a really important message for health professionals working with young people who have type 2. Of course we understand that there are a number of social determinants of health and the intergenerational impact of type 2 diabetes. So we just need to think more broadly about why type 2 exists for our young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and how it is that we support them to better manage that. And a a big part of that story is removing the blame and working with bigger structures and systems to better support them with their management. Right. So what I'm hearing in there is that sometimes the stigma that people are experiencing is actually coming from health professionals. I think in some cases, yes, and I don't want to blame health professionals in any way for that, but I think the way that we think about type 2 and also obesity, it is on the individual, but I think we need to change the way that we think about that and talk about that because often a lot of the decision-making that young people are able to make around their health, it's beyond their control. Emily, I wanted to ask if you're happy to talk about it, feeling ashamed of being diagnosed with diabetes or maybe feeling embarrassed to talk to people about it. Is that something that you've found or not so much? Not so much. Um, I think it was just pretty normal. I grew up with it. If anyone asked, I would just tell them I wasn't ashamed of having this. Renee, based on the findings of your study, what sort of things do you think places could be doing differently? Definitely investing in and valuing the importance of developing and um, and maintaining meaningful relationships with young people. And I think often, you know, primary healthcare centres or clinics are quite stretched, but really it's about creating the time and the space to establish those relationships to encourage young people to come back. And that really speaks to as well the need to invest in our Aboriginal workforce to support young people with their needs. Absolutely. And can we quickly just sort of remind people why managing diabetes well is so important, especially when people are getting it when they're quite young? Yeah, definitely. So some of the complications and impacts of type 2 diabetes can include chronic kidney disease and dialysis, foot amputations, heart disease, hospital admissions. We need to be investing in the prevention of type 2 because we know that prevention is better than cure or treatment. And we also know that Local action to create change is incredibly important and effective and this can be achieved at a local level when we're working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Yeah, so there's two prongs here. One is doing better when dealing with people who've got type 2 diabetes but also trying to prevent people from getting it in the first place. Absolutely. And we we really need to focus on working with young people and their families and communities to make change and improve care and improve their health and wellbeing rather than making decisions and policy on behalf of them because genuine shared decision-making and partnerships are absolutely critical to improving the outcomes. What sort of value is there in people hearing from people like Emily? Sharing these stories is really important because it starts to reduce the isolation that young people are feeling. By sharing these stories and really building up some of those peer support networks, hopefully that will start to reduce some of the stigma and help young people to feel comfortable reaching out and accessing the support that they need to manage their diabetes well. Emily, is there anything that you would say to other young people who are maybe um, worried about diabetes or who've been diagnosed with it? 
I think the most thing is not to be ashamed of it. I understand how you would be ashamed of it, but I am not. I think a really important part of Emily's story is that she's got a really supportive family network and a family who understand and live with diabetes. And so managing her diabetes has been perhaps a little bit easier for her in comparison to other young people who haven't had that support. Yeah. And so when families are strong and and understand you know, the need to engage with effective management, outcomes are definitely improved, wouldn't you say, Emily? Yes. Renee and Emily, thank you so much for, for talking to me today. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr Renee Kirkham, Senior Research Officer and Deputy Lead of the Diabetes Across the Life Course Partnership at the Menzies Institute. And we also heard from Emily Allen from Catherine Way, who was diagnosed with diabetes two years ago. This has been The Health Report for another week. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.